Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with Anya Foxen, an associate professor of religious studies at California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. Her research focuses on the intersection of South Asian yogic and tantric traditions with Western esotericism and metaphysical spiritualities. Her special areas of interest include gender and embodiment, as well as the interplay of religion and science. She's the author of three books, including Is This Yoga with Krista Kuberi and Inhaling Spirit. This turned out to be a fun and loose conversation between two longtime yoga practitioners where we talk about the roots of modern yoga in America and the influence of Western esotericism on contemporary yoga theory and practice. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks for listening. Okay, I'm here with Anya Foxen today. Anya, is it Anya or Anya? Anya? <laughs> Anya, okay. <laughs> I always ask because you never know. Yeah, well, and it's a it's an unusual name. Anya Foxen. Um, where does the name come from? Both names. Uh, it's so Anya is Russian. Um, it's like the diminutive form of Anna. Um, and then Foxen is actually something that my partner and I chose when we got married. Um, so we wanted to either neither change our last names or both change. Um, so we named ourselves after Fox and Canyon Road, uh, which is a road and wine country around here. It's where we fell in love with wine and each other. <laughs> fell, fell in love with each other over a glass of wine, maybe. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> uh, I was wondering if it was like a Germanic name that had been kind of changed, you know, or something. But um, yeah, probably. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my wife and I, when we first met, um, we started playing in a band together. And we called the band Foxes. So nice. there's a love connection for me, too, with that kind of name. I mean, it's similar. Yeah, we actually, when we met, one of the first article links that we exchanged was about the Channel Island Foxes that had, I think, mostly been extinct and then just like sprang back right as we met. So Fox and Canyon Road was sort of a, a second step in our journey with the foxes together. Interesting. Well, we could talk a lot about that and that imagery, and um, but we're here to talk about yoga, one of my That's favorite right. topics. Um, you've written, a, what, two or three books on yoga now? Is that right? Yeah, two and a half. I guess one is co-authored, so two to three. Right. And um, you sent me the copy of, uh, I guess, the more scholarly of the texts called Is This Yoga?, on Routledge, um, mm -hmm. which is... Yeah, that's the co-authored one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can delve into um, what you cover in the other books too. I think one is more of like a, what would you call it? Like a trade paperback for a more mainstream audience. Yeah. I mean, they're all sort of academic, right? They're published through academic presses. Um, mm. I think as I've gone along as a scholar, I've tried to get a little bit more kind of accessible. Um, I don't always succeed. Mm. Well, I mean, I found the writing style of uh, Is This Yoga 
to be very approachable, actually. Um, not, uh, I mean, there's scholarship behind it, but the way the materials presented, I found uh, very easy to read and approachable. And okay, so we had a little interruption. Um, let's see if we can pick up where we left off. We were just going to start talking about uh, about your book. Uh, Is this yoga? Now, I'm really interested as a longtime yoga practitioner myself. Do you remember your first exposure to yoga or Indian culture? You know, I do. Um, let me figure out which one of the two came first. Um, so I think the yoga came first. Um, I was, it was the summer after my freshman year in college. Um, and my mom had started doing Bikram yoga back in, you know, central New Jersey. This was, I don't know, around 2004, something like that. Um, and I was just kind of fascinated by the fact that she was doing this thing and it was this like sweltering room and she would come home, she had to, you know, wring out her clothes. Um, so I went and started doing that with her over the summer, but then very quickly, I want to say maybe even that same fall semester, I also took a class on Indian philosophy. Um, and so it was sort of this very interesting juxtaposition of, on the one hand, this like very physical style of yoga, right? And then on the other hand, like this completely cerebral philosophical, like, I mean, we were reading the Yoga Sutras, but even that was just completely unrelated um, to me, it seemed, you know, to like what was going on in my yoga class. Um, but yeah, that was, that was sort of it. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like a, a kind of seed was planted there in the juxtaposition of this um, very commercialized practice mm -hmm. and what you're reading in uh, in school. Um, so, well, from Bikram, I'm assuming that you got a little more interested in exploring other forms of yoga, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I when I ultimately did my yoga teacher training, it was with Jimmy Barkin, um, who had been one of Bikram's first students back in like the early, early 80s, um, and then subsequently became one of his senior teachers. So it was still definitely sort of Bikram adjacent. Um, it was well after Jimmy and Bikram had kind of gone their own separate ways. But um, it was sort of within that, you know, hot yoga sort of school of stuff, all these folks that had sort of separated themselves from Bikram, but then held on to the heat and held on to, you know, some of the poses that were sort of specific to that lineage. Um, I mean, I'm still sort of there, you know, I, I normally what I do is kind of hot vinyasa. Um, so I definitely had explored other styles subsequently, but it's like, I just kind of keep finding my way back into the really hot, sweaty room. Hmm. Did you ever uh, try to find something that was quote unquote more traditional? Um, hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think by the time that I would have sort of branched out enough to do that, um, I had already kind of started, you know, like I was enough along my academic path um, to sort of start to question the whole concept of what is traditional. Um, yeah, I think that's, <laughs> that's kind of the only answer I can give. Because I mean, now, you know, what, 15, almost 20 years on, I'm not sure <laughs> what that even means, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, um, 
what uh i mean what were the first steps you took to digging into the roots of yoga mm. trying to understand you know where this practice comes from and how it got to look the way it yeah. does when you finally get to a bikram class and you go how did mm -hmm. this thing i'm reading about the text become this thing yeah absolutely and that really bugged me right i mean this again you know we're talking maybe 2004 to 2007 um, I was kind of getting, you know, into um, yoga, both, you know, from a kind of practice standpoint and also um, from an academic kind of more, more like, again, cerebral intellectual standpoint. Um, at that point, yoga scholarship was really kind of a non-existent field still. There had been a couple of studies. I mean, there had been the really classical ones all the way back in the day in the mid 20th century. Um, but as far as modern stuff, um, there was uh, one book by Joseph Alter, Elizabeth E. McAllis's book that's now kind of like foundational to, to the field had just come out, I think. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm a nerd. So my inclination is always to kind of like go read books. Uh, but at the time, there really weren't any books to read. Um, and, you know, when I would ask teachers, um, you know, so like, what are we doing in this class? How is this related to, you know, yoga in terms of philosophy and history? How old are these poses? Nobody could really give me a straight answer. Um, and so, I mean, that was basically the impetus behind me going and doing a PhD because I was like, I have to figure this out. Like my life will have no meaning unless I can figure this out. <laughs> got like a, a mystery to solve i mean you know that's that's the kind of shit you go with when you're in your early 20s you're yeah. like yes like i have this question and there must clearly be an answer to it right because how could there not be um so and then of I, course you get a little bit older and you realize maybe there's not really a straightforward answer right yeah yeah but what, what do you think that first question was was it um what is yoga like what is really yoga I mean, I think it was that, but I think, you know, it was always kind of more personal for me. I think it was, what is my practice, right? Like, what am I like, what doing? What am I doing? Yeah. What am I doing? Mm -hmm. um, because it was doing something for me, um, mm -hmm. you know, even in this sort of hyper-physical kind of form, on, uh, form of it, like something was happening. Um, and so I wasn't really willing to write it off as just like, oh, this is glorified exercise. Um, right. Like something about that had to make sense. It had to have come from somewhere. Um, and so I think that was really sort of the mystery, right? It's like, how, how does this emerge out of something like the yoga sutras? Um, what is the connection if there is any at all? Mm -hmm. And like lying there on the floor after an intense practice in Shavasana, wondering, is this what they mean when they say the state of yoga like this? <laughs> exhausted <laughs> contentment <laughs> yeah i don't know that i ever kind of thought highly enough of my own practice back in those days to really ask that question <laughs> but maybe yeah maybe there was some of it to that right because again yeah i was feeling something um and it wasn't just you know oh gosh i'm tired and really hot um like there was something more profound there that i hadn't ever experienced before in my life and that i wasn't really used to experiencing in any other circumstances um and so like it seemed to me that there's just like there had to be something there mm -hmm. yeah i know just what you're talking about i was like a yoga dilettante for a long time 
<clears throat> just trying out whatever mm. classes. I didn't really know there were different schools. I would just kind of go to whatever class was convenient. Um, mm -hmm. in, in the 90s, there wasn't a lot. So it was like, take what you can get, kind of. And then later, when I started to do my research, I figured out, oh, that first teacher, he was like, uh, he was an Iyengar guy mm -hmm. um, and this and that. And then I found vinyasa, which I didn't know what that word meant or anything. I just know that when I went to that class, I felt that special something. And I was able to, um, to kind of uh, locate it as there's something about the combination of breathing and moving that mm. touched something inside of me that, like you said, I hadn't never felt before. It was like this uh, light went on inside. I said, ooh, there's something to this. Like I kind of get all the hype about yoga now. And yeah. then I went in pursuit of that. Like, what is that thing? And what's the kind of the way toward that? Is there a, kind of a clear path to uh, replicate that experience and all of that? And that sent mm -hmm. me on a whole journey. Um, but it's interesting because you just kind of had this practice. I was more exploring like different types of practices and lineages and things like that. I'm a very mm -hmm. kind of practical type of person. Scholarship came later. But uh, interesting to me that you went into the books and trying to track down source texts and stuff like that. So um, curious, like what was some of the um, deepest roots of yoga that you found? How was yoga described in those early texts? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it sort of depends on what you mean by yoga, right? Um, and that's sort of the topic of of the um, the is this yoga book that um, that you had looked at. So, to me, the kind of common thread that runs through all of this, um, including some of this um, other stuff that I like to write about, you know, these kind of like spiritualized breath movement practices um, that really come from like Western spiritual traditions that you know historically maybe we wouldn't even really call yoga at all, right? Because they're not Indian. Um, is that there's this, there is this sort of sense of connectedness, right? It's like the yoga means union kind of stuff. Um, and so I think that if you want to trace yoga all the way back to like those earliest recorded instances that we have of it popping up. Um, so we're talking, you know, maybe like the Vedic hymns or something at this point, like 1500 BCE. Um, in that context, um, yoga as a word, doesn't actually necessarily refer to like a spiritual practice. Um, usually when you see yoga popping up in those contexts, it refers to like chariots and stuff. Because um, I mean, it's like yoga is also to yoke, right? So like mm -hmm. when you when you sort of like rig up a chariot, that's, that's the word. Um, but there's this kind of like fine tuning that's implied by that, right? that like over time kind of gets applied to um, the type of fine tuning that people are doing with their minds and their bodies and their spiritual practices. Um, and so in those earliest texts where you find all the chariots, of course, you also find all sorts of mystical practices. Um, they're not necessarily either the physical or the kind of meditative practice that we would associate with yoga today, but they are sort of visionary states of union. Um, and so again, there's this kind of connectedness. There's this kind of, um, you know, parts to a whole kind of logic um, that I think does go back to even those earliest sources. Um, and that is, I think, in a sense, maybe not universal, right? Because that's sort of a big claim. Um, 
but sort of universal, at least really widespread um, across human spiritual traditions. Um, that happens even when you don't necessarily see the word yoga being applied to it quite yet. Um, there's there's mm-hmm. still that kind of seed that's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think of the word yoga sometimes like the word religion, like religion, mm-hmm. uh, ligare, ligament to join, to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, and yoga to connect. And so the actual means of connection or what we're connecting to is uh, is kind of secondary or changeable um, depending on the time and the situation and the circumstance and the person mm-hmm. and all of that. It's a very kind of general term, right? And yeah. it, it makes sense that it's the word yoga that came out of that because it was uh, an agrarian culture. And mm-hmm. so there were oxen and uh, horses and things like that and um so that just kind of makes sense but in terms of uh spiritual practice uh how far back would you say it goes like a lot of people point to patanjali but the mm-hmm. the source of that text is so kind of nebulous like right. is it is it a collection of older oral teachings that uh someone named patanjali uh codified mm-hmm. put together um but is that maybe the oldest uh, association we have with yoga to spiritual practice of yoking the mind or the soul to something? So, I mean, and there's a lot of arguments among scholars, right? Like how old is potentially? Um, I think off the top of my head, probably in the Upanishads, you find something that looks like that that's a little bit older um even potentially right i mean his the first verse is atha yoga anushasanam that now is the continuation of the teaching on yoga um so there's already in the text this kind of acknowledgement right that there's right. there's something that comes before um i think well and this is where we run into the problem of ancient history right just because we don't have like a written source for it doesn't mean that it doesn't go back any further um, it's just that we can't like point to a thing and be like, this is the date. Um, I think though, the more complicated question maybe is then like, what what kind of spiritual practice do we specifically mean, right? Are we talking about meditation? Uh, what kind of meditation, right? Because there's, I mean, there's already all sorts of branches that you could go off on there. Um, are we talking about spiritual or uh, physical techniques, not necessarily postures, um, but some way of manipulating the body so that we can maybe manipulate like the subtle energies inside of it. Um, and so all of those things, I think, are already kind of floating around, um, at least in some of these later Vedic sources. So we're talking about like the time of the Buddha historically, right? right. We're talking maybe 5th, 6th century BCE. Um the meditation is there, some of these physical techniques that are more associated with like renouncer traditions. Um, these guys that are, you know, dropping their lives essentially, right? Leaving their homes, leaving these their families, going off and, and engaging in some of these pretty hardcore practices. Um, all of that stuff is already there. Uh, is it being called yoga? Not necessarily. Um, but I mean, does that really matter, right? If it's the practice that we care about, then, then the practice is already sort of being done. Um, it might be being done differently than what we see today or even what we see, you know, than like in 500 CE. But again, the seeds, I think, are already kind of kind of there. Yeah. I mean, the question, what is yoga, is kind of an impossible question because it's so many things and it's been mm-hmm. applied in so many different ways. 
but the common thread being the yoking. Yeah, uh, the connecting, e e right? Mm -hmm. Well, even in like the uh, kind of fifth century Hatha yoga practices, uh, while externally there's uh, you know postures and breathing practices, the internal process is a scene as seen as a union of different things. I mean, different mm -hmm. metaphors are used: the sun and the moon, um, the different pranas. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the upward breath and the downward breath. Yeah, or you know, from the the two nadis into shushumna, mm -hmm. the central channel, mm -hmm. and and all of that, and that bringing about something like a kind of health uh, or power, um, immortality. Even I mm -hmm. mean, big claim. The immortality I always thought of as metaphorical, though. Like if we connect to something, um, kind of. Uh, like that sense of oneness or dissolution of mm. the small self, it feels immortal, you know, not that it's going to yeah. help your body to live forever, but you connect to something that sense of immortality. That's how I've That's always. That's how I like it. to think of it too. Yeah. I'm a little, I'm kind of, for me, the jury's still out on these like immortal superhuman beings that are, you know, just like hanging out on mountaintops or whatever. Or in the astral realm. Or in the, well, I mean, like, you know, between the mountaintop and the astral realm, right? The, it starts to get a little slippery. Well, I've got to say, I've had some experiences where it seems like there's some connection to those realms and that these mm -hmm. beings maybe are there. And it may be a figment of my imagination. I have no idea, but I'm kind of a phenomenologist. I, I take the experience as it comes and mm -hmm. experiences like, something visited me in Shavasana and did some like work on my energetic system, you know, these kind of wild yeah. experiences we can have. Um, so who knows? Well, um, just because it's in your imagination, quote unquote, right. Doesn't yeah. mean that it's not real um, exactly. in some really meaningful way. Yeah, I agree. I don't like to denigrate the imagination as uh, you know, a figment of uh, or a product of the mind or something. Um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's a really hard question, like to ask, is this yoga, like to look at something and assess it, is this yoga, we have to go into the question, well, what is yoga, what are we talking mm -hmm. about when we're talking about yoga, and then like you said, it really opens up, it's like, well, I don't know, but like in your research, did you uh, ever try to sit down and come up with like a bullet point list of, okay, yoga is always talking about these particular things. And these are maybe things we can use to measure a practice or philosophy against to assess whether it could be called yoga. Like, mm -hmm. did you ever come up with something like that? Like it has to contain these kind of elements? Yeah, I mean, hmm. not formally, right? Um, and And for the very specific reason that I think I just don't like nailing down definitions. I have an issue with commitment, right? Uh, well, I'm with you too. <laughs> Well, and I think to some extent, like there's there's two directions that you could go there. Um, on the one hand, you know, even in making your little checklist, um, you could kind of think about like, yeah, like what is what is the substance of the thing, right? Like what is it doing? Um, is it about, you know, connecting something? Is it about, you know, manipulating the body or manipulating the mind? Um, is it about energy? Is it about, you know, some kind of microcosm, macrocosm sort of thing? Um, in which case, I mean, sure, right, that might all be very useful. 
Um, but we could look at Indian culture and we could find those things, but we could also look at European culture and we could look at, you know, North African culture and we could look at East Asian culture and we could also find those things. Um, so then do we call all of those other non-Indian things yoga? I mean, that from, you know, like a, that's where my like little scholarly, like, like nervous reactions start to kind of kick in. Yeah, um, it makes me, it makes me a little itchy too. Cause then at that point, why are we appropriating the word yoga? Exactly. Exactly. To right. To describe these other things. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you know, I don't need an answer to that question. I, I, gave... I don't have one for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I gave up on that a long time ago, just trying to figure out like, what is yoga or yeah. what is real yoga? That was a kind of thing that grabbed me early on when I started teaching. You know, I wanted to get as close to the source as possible to be sure that what I was mm -hmm. offering was authentic and rooted in tradition. And I mean, once I started to do the scholarship, yeah, it was just like, it's impossible. Who knows? Mm -hmm. The only thing I could do was align myself to teachers that I trusted and um, kind of follow them. Mm -hmm. you know, and kind of trust their authority and then trust, you know, how the practices worked for me and how I saw them working for other people. And that, that was enough for me because the bigger questions, it's like, well, who knows? I mean, nobody can agree on this and I don't want to argue. I just want to do my yoga and, uh, right. you know, relax. Well, and is it working? <laughs> right. Is yeah. it, I think it's a pretty important question when we're talking about practices. Otherwise, like, what's yes. the point? <laughs> what's the point? <laughs> You know, one of the things that makes me laugh the hardest is um, when we've got Western uh, people who claim to be non-dualists, all they do is sit around and argue about what is non-dualism and who has mm. reached a state of non-dualism. I'm like, look, if you were actually in a state of non-duality, you wouldn't be arguing. You'd be like gardening. or Yeah, exactly. Else. Right. <laughs> Go be non-dual. <laughs> Go be non-dual. Get off the internet. Um, okay, well, so that's an impossibility. And I like how you guys explore that. And you, you kind of set out in that um, is this yoga book right from the outset, like we're not going to get to any definitive answer here. But it's an exploration of the kind of um, the diversity of what's been called yoga. Um, I'm interested, though, I think in uh, your earlier book, which I haven't read, but I heard you speak about it. Uh, how when yoga was brought to the west and kind of um taken up by westerners particularly north american people how it was uh kind of syncretized with western esotericism mm -hmm. i mean i find that whole uh melding very interesting and intriguing um that that is the subject of one of your earlier books yeah right? yeah and it's fascinating um I mean, I think that's when my practice actually started sort of making sense to me, right? I mean, mm -hmm. all my books are personal, but I think to some extent that was maybe like the most personal one. Uh, that was my second book after I had sort of, you know, finished my dissertation and I felt like I could sort of do whatever I wanted. Um, yeah, I, and at first, you know, cause I kind of, I was still very much in an academic mindset. And so I was like, well, what's my next book gonna be? I still have this question that I wanna answer. Um, and I was actually working off of uh, the book of another scholar named Mark Singleton, 
um, you wrote Yoga Body, which I think sort of had its moment among like mm -hmm. yoga teachers and yoga teacher training, you know, because you made that sort of like very famous controversial claim, like, oh, asana practice, it's only like 150 years old. And then everybody just had like a crisis. Um, yeah. And he uh, specifically called out the root teacher of the lineage that I learned in practice in Krishnamacharya. Uh -huh. uh, you know, and so he caused a lot of arguments and um, pissed a lot of people off, I think, but yeah, I think he probably yeah. enjoyed that to a certain extent, you know. I think, you know, as a scholar, like, if you're the provocateur, not making some though. people mad, yeah, like, you know, that's, that's what you're supposed to be doing. You got um, noticed anyway. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, he, one of the sort of subclaims to that that he makes is that all of these things that, you know, we're calling kind of just generic yoga um, in Europe, especially North America today, um, you know, not if you're going to like a lineage affiliated studio, but if you just go to the gym, right, or you go to like core power or something, um, all of these things were being practiced. If you look at just like fitness manuals in the 19th century, but they weren't being called yoga um, at a certain point the word yoga become kind of applied to them, right? But if you look at what people are doing, they're still effectively doing the same thing. Um, and so that was sort of the thing that, that got my mind working, um, especially because he was talking about uh, women's physical culture, exercise manuals in particular. Um, and I had this other like little sub question, like why is 75% of every yoga class at least made up of women, right? Why, why this kind of gender disparity? Um, and so at first I thought I was going to write a book about 19th century women's exercise manuals. Um, but as soon as I started reading the stuff um, and trying to figure out like, okay, so they are, I mean, they're talking about it in terms of spirituality. They're pairing breath with movement. Like, where is this coming from? Because they don't seem to be aware of Indian yoga tradition. Um, it's, there's like sort of, you know, all these claims of ancient wisdom going on, but they're not necessarily talking about India. If they are, they're making like just very oblique references. They're talking about like ancient Egypt. Um, yeah. and yeah, so that's well, I was when I just went down the rabbit hole. Yeah. I was going to say like in the 19th century, there was such a kind of, uh, fad of Orientalism and exoticism mm -hmm. that you would think that if they were, uh, co-opting, you know, yoga from India, that they would put that kind of front and center as a selling oh, yeah. point, you know, something to entice the Victorian mind, like, ooh, this is mm -hmm, exotic, mm -hmm. but they didn't. So yeah, it tells me that maybe it came from some other source or, um, you know, I really think like these practices are human practices that, that everyone kind of discovers at some point, because you see these things pop up. Like one of the metaphors used for yoga is like yoga as a rhizome. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that's a really good one rather than a, a tree with branches and, you know, all these different limbs of yoga. But I think it is more like a rhizome because I think the practice or the seeking for a union with something greater is archetypal to the human experience. And so it's going to pop up in different cultures and times in mm -hmm. different forms, but there are going to be some like kind of essential ingredients to it. Like the breath. Mm -hmm. Breath has always been, um, uh, uh, seen as like spirit, as uh, mm -hmm. something divine, you know, that which gives us life. And well, kind of makes sense because yeah, if we stop breathing, we stop living. So there's something very special about the breath and mysterious. It's everywhere. It's eternal itself. Like it's, we're just in a constant exchange. I'm breathing the same air as someone a thousand years ago, maybe, you know, mm -hmm. like 
just that. I mean, yeah. Okay. I mean, I think just the reality of the human body, right? I mean, and I say that sort of with a little bit of like caution, because I think even just the way that we understand and experience our bodies is so shaped by like all this stuff that we get from the outside, right? Like it's that that's also sort of historically contextual. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, like everybody breathes. Um, and when you breathe, depending on how you breathe, like stuff happens to your body and your mind. Um, so I think there is some kind of just, yeah, like common human, like as close as you can get to a universal core, right, that makes people sort of come up with this, at least very similar, if not the same stuff across time and space. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the practices uh, I was intrigued by one that you talk about called, uh, I think it's called harmonialism, which is like such mm. a kind of 19th century name. I love it. Um, that perked up my ears because I'd never heard of it before. But uh, in 2017, I wanted to write a yoga manual that was like just the straight goods um, to kind of take away mm-hmm. all the Sanskrit terminology and everything and just give people the technique so that they could have their own experience and not overlay it with a bunch of philosophical things. Um, mm-hmm. And I called it harmonic movement. Mm. Because, you know, when I got down to it, I'm like, well, what, what does, how would I translate vinyasa into English? And that's what I came up with is harmonic movement. And then I hear, oh, and then in the 19th century, in the 1800s, there was a bunch of women practicing something called yeah, harmonic gymnastics. <laughs> yeah, harmonic gymnastics. There you go. Uh, I just love that kind of thing. Um, because it's again, like, um, the common human experience, you know, we're all kind of coming up from the depths with, uh, the same stuff and finding names for it. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what did, what did harmonic gymnastics look like? You know, I've been trying to figure that out recently. Um, because I have this very good friend of mine, um, I, she and I were at the same conference and I was giving a talk actually about one of these 19th century women, uh, that essentially sort of invented harmonic gymnastics. Um, and I was trying to sort of describe like, well, you know, it's like she's doing this thing and she's kind of swaying like, and, you know, shifting her weight from foot to foot. Um, and I, I mean, I sort of did like some interpretive version of it as I was giving this, this talk. Um, and then my friend said to me like, have you actually tried going through these manuals and like doing the exercises? And I was a little bit embarrassed to say like, no. <laughs> Well, so there you go. You're I not, you're should, not so much. Right? A, yeah, you're not so much a, a, a practical explorer, but scholarly, right? But I'm well, and I think because to some extent, like it seems a little bit basic and boring to me, because they are just like shifting their weight from foot to foot a lot of time. <laughs> like, I want to know, I want to do vinyasa. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, we've already gotten past that. Now, you know, we're on to something better yeah, now, yeah. more exciting, more dynamic. That's interesting because they called it gymnastics, but it, it doesn't sound very gymnastic in terms of uh, contortionism or explosive movement mm-hmm. or things like that. Yeah, well, and I think there's some reasons for that. One is, um, you know, this is where you get into the whole like it's Victorian times, and right? It's like, women. what could you it's what like... could you do in a hoop skirt? <laughs> exactly, right? And like, well, and like we don't want them to get like too strong, right? Like, like they right. still need to be like feminine and delicate. Um, so, I mean, I think some of it is that, right. That it actually like was not supposed to be very physically demanding. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's kind of because it's coming out of, um, you know, they call it gymnastics. But again, there's sort of like a complex tangle of reasons for why that is. Uh, one of the places that it's coming out of is actually training for like actors um, and not just like dancers. Right. But people who would like move their bodies to express some kind of aesthetic something um, in a variety of of venues so actors but also like just people doing like rhetoric or something like that um so it actually was supposed to focus on these like very um you know sort of fine-tuned like very subtle gestures right like sometimes it really makes a difference like exactly how you curve your hand um you know if you're trying to like like on a stage convey something like in a very subtle way so I think there's there's something there that really is very closely tied to not just like exercise and physical fitness, but also aesthetics. Um, and that's part of where the the harmonialism of it all comes in, right? Because it's it's music and it's um, mm. it's a sort of way of again, kind of like calibrating, right, fine tuning um, the body as though it's almost like an instrument, um, mm-hmm. so that it can kind of be in in tune, in harmony with like the entire cosmos. Uh, did they use that kind of um, cosmological terminology or was it? A... They did actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a spiritual element to it. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you able to find any, well, first of all, I want to see those manuals too. And I want to at least experiment a little bit. I'll like, send you some. <laughs> yeah. If there's something there, like, wouldn't that be kind of a cool revival, you know? Um, yeah. But maybe it's just too boring for us moderns. I mean, but I think to some like if you have any dance training, and I think it's why you see so many dancers who become yoga teachers, you've already done a bunch of this stuff. In fact, I've had yoga teachers who had a background in dance essentially just like at the beginning of a yoga class instruct one of these like weight shifting exercise exercises. And you know, it's like I, I can't imagine they got it from their yoga teacher training. Um, they must have gotten it from, you know, whatever training they had had in dance. So this stuff is very much still around. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just, again, it's kind of branched off, right, in these different disciplines. Yeah. Um, Were you able to then uh, track anything that started to resemble what we think of as uh, vinyasa? Like, I remember seeing some old pamphlets of the... um, I don't know if they called it Surya Namaskar or just like sun salutation, but kind of uh, 19th century era, maybe early 20th um, pamphlets of these, you know, 12 movements Mm. uh, that were supposed to bring health and longevity and vigor, you know, kind of like physical culture type stuff, you know. Mm -hmm, but I remember, like, I, I seem to remember anyway, that it was, uh, it was still from like an Indian source, like some Swami or Yogi Baba type guy, mm-hmm. you know, whoever it was, who knows. But was there anything coming out of um, kind of uh, Euro culture that resembles something like it, what we think of now as yoga? Yeah. And so I think this is where, you know, because like when we're talking about vinyasa, it's not just that it's breath and movement, right? Um, I mean, and it might be repetitive to some extent, right? Like a sun salutation isn't that many different movements, but it's still moving kind of from pose to pose, mm-hmm. uh, which is different, let's say, than just like me standing and like rotating my arm over and over and over again, 
I mean, that's also like a dynamic movement and I could pair it with the breath or even just lifting my arms over my head or something like that. Um, but it doesn't have the kind of dynamism, right? It doesn't have the kind of, again, almost like a dance like quality that mm-hmm. like what we think of as vinyasa today tends to have. The um, sequencing, yeah. Yeah, the sequencing, exactly. And so, I mean, weirdly, like the first place that I've really found something like that is in this, um, you know, these women's physical culture manuals before any kind of, um, you know, again, kind of contact with Indian yoga traditions comes in. Uh, they're what they're calling it is statue posing, which uh-huh. sounds so weird and it's like so fascinating. Um, <laughs> so basically, the idea, right, is because they're coming up with all these like aesthetic formulas for you know, if you move the body this way, it expresses you know despair. Um, if you move it this other way, it expresses joy. Um, and what they're looking at, because this this whole like kind of Victorian neoclassical revival, um, are these classical Greek sculptures um, and how the sculpture, even though it's a sort of static form, it like conveys emotion because of mm-hmm. the aesthetic principles of the thing. Um, so they come up with this thing where it's like you you statue pose, right? You assume the aesthetic forms of these statues, mm-hmm. but you do it in a flowing sequence. And so the whole point of the thing is that you're supposed to kind of very gracefully, very fluidly, very effortlessly move from one pose to another. And so again, it's completely divorced, right, from any sort of like what we usually hear as the rationale behind vinyasa, but like they're kind of doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of this, I mean, just because again, there's so many ways that I think you can like arrange the limbs and stuff. Um, some of what they're doing does sort of look like yoga poses. Um, but that's early. I think very quickly yeah. after that, though, you get um, this like really dynamic kind of exchange between those women, right, that are doing this like weird neoclassical thing. Um, and uh, like you said, kind of Indian teachers, right, who are also innovating, to be clear. Um, it's not as though they're just carrying on some kind of timeless tradition. They're also looking for ways to, you know, maybe incorporate elements of like indigenous Indian physical culture. Like that's also a tradition that's evolving. And so at a certain point, they just kind of like come together and start to really evolve in conversation with one another. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the influence goes both ways. Um mm-hmm. You know, one of the earliest Indian teachers that you see really talking about this kind of rhythmic breath movement um, is Sri Yogendra. Um, and he very explicitly, I mean, he actually quotes one of these uh, Victorian women. Um, he's very explicit about being influenced by European culture. So it's, it's, there's a lot of really interesting conversation happening, I think, is kind of the takeaway. Yeah. Yeah, it's often the case, um, especially in this day and age with um, accusations of cultural appropriation being uh, th- thrown about so frequently and so vehemently Mm. i think people who fall into that uh just haven't done enough um history you know because as soon as you start going back there's no pure anything everything Mm -hmm. has been part of uh cultural dialogue and exchange like everything and it goes Mm -hmm. both ways um at least as far as i can see i mean i've never found anything that looks uh, like pure, like it uh, was developed in a uh, kind of bubble, you know, without any. Yeah, nothing's influence. hermetically sealed, right? Yeah, yeah, not as far as I can see, anyway. 
Um, but this exchange is interesting, like, you know, especially when we get into um, the incorporation of uh, images from Western esotericism and uh, Neoplatonism and Hermeticism, uh, it kind of overlays so well that it's you wonder if it's not again mm -hmm. kind of archetypal and coming from a, a common source like what comes to mind always for me is like you know usually you know it's the seven chakra system mm -hmm. and you think about the seven um, planets of the Chaldean order and mm -hmm. the Neoplatonic ideal that to return to the one you've got to go back through the mm -hmm. planets mm -hmm. and remediate their influence on you and um, now I don't think that that idea in terms of relating to the chakras is inherently Indian. I think that came through this uh, cultural exchange. Right. Uh, you know, Westerners trying to make sense of the chakras go, oh, well, mm -hmm. it's kind of like this. And the root chakra is about like uh, willpower exactly. or whatever, you know, that kind of thing, the psycholo psychologizing of the chakras. Mm -hmm. um, were you able to find any instances of that in Indian texts where chakras were associated with different um, kind of levels of development? Because I always found they were more having to do with elements and deities and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I think it depends on what you mean by levels of development. Mm -hmm. I mean, because what you, uh, you know, I think this, this thing you said about like kind of the psychologization of the chakras, um, it's definitely a thing. Um, but also, like, even, even on the Western front, it's, like, a fairly modern thing, right, for us to be thinking in these, like, specifically psychological terms. Um, mm -hmm. oh, you know, yeah. if you look at how... Years. Yeah, That's yeah, it. I mean, yeah. they are talking about, yeah, ascending through the planets, right, kind of, yeah, whether it's you're, you're conquering the archons or whatever, yeah, you're remediating sort of their <laughs> astral influences or whatever. All of that is there, but to think about it in this kind of, yeah, it's like layers of your personality or something like that, like, that for us, right, like kind of in, in Euro-American culture is very modern. Um, so I think... I mean, I haven't thought about this at, at nearly great enough length to really be making any kind of like conclusive statements, even if I were inclined towards such a thing. But I think um, if you were to look at just like the broad range of what chakras get associated with in medieval Indian texts, you could probably find something like that. I mean, because certainly the idea is also it's, it's ascent right? And it's ascent through different levels of the cosmos. They're not talking about it in terms of planets. Um, they are more talking about, you know, deities, right? Yeah, maybe certain realms or something like that. Um, but it's it still has this kind of, um, I don't know if hierarchical is the right word, but at least sort of an upward um, sort of trajectory to it. And it is supposed to, I mean, kind of, it takes you to, to higher levels of, of development, right? Of consciousness. Um, as you go up. So I think there are also just like compelling similarities between the two systems that, yeah, sometime in the 19th century, you know, made a bunch of both Western and Indian people on both sides go like, oh, I wonder if this is the same system, right? Mm -hmm. And then they start kind of like mixing the two. And that's how we get seven rainbow color chakras that are now associated with like planets and musical notes and stuff. Um, it doesn't mean that the similarities yes. weren't there, right? Well, just... I mean, that's that's another example of the kind of uh, music of the spheres, kind of Robert mm -hmm. Flood um, type thing, like that um, Pythagorean 
uh, you know, seven notes of the scale, ascending, yeah. all of that. I mean, that's in there too. And I mean, yeah, you can kind of overlay all these things together and come up with like a, a wonderful eclectic new age practice, you know, where mm -hmm. you're humming different notes as you do your breathing practice and visualizing colors and, you know, petals opening. And I mean, I think I did that at Esalen a few months ago, actually. <laughs> People are doing that. I'm sure you did. Yeah. <laughs> And it's kind of its own thing at that point that mm -hmm. um, that kind of uh, appropriates from actually a bunch of different traditions, you know, and yeah. that to me is just kind of like evolution of human culture, especially when it becomes globalized and the exchange of ideas becomes more fluid and uh, mm -hmm. and rapid, mm -hmm. like we're going to get more more syncretization that just seems to me like human nature. It's like ooh, this kind of, this is interesting, or this helps yeah. me make sense of the world and myself and my place in it. And like, okay, I can use this uh, to help me make meaning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a, it's a wonderful and a beautiful thing, actually, right? I mean, I have my own very specific approach to like spiritual practice, but um, in my mind, that's like exactly what we should be doing, right? We should be learning from each other um, and like kind of like mutually enriching our, our traditions and our practices and our ways of thinking about the world. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I mean, to some extent, I don't wanna completely dismiss this idea of cultural appropriation though, right? Because I think like the power dynamics of the thing also matter. Um, you know, when we start to make historical claims about like authenticity on either end, it can get really problematic. Um, but also like like colonialism was a thing, right? And um, it is a I thing. Mean, it is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> the power dynamics have not been equal. Um, and, totally. you know, those those people that um, want to sort of bring up the question of like, well, but look, you know, look who's speaking for yoga, right? Like who's being represented in this, these spaces? Who's being included? Who's being excluded? Uh, who's making money off of this stuff? Um, that's when I'm like, yeah, okay. Like maybe maybe we should be talking about cultural appropriation. Right? There's, there's like all that, especially kind of in this capitalist, you know, neoliberal world that we live in. Like that stuff matters. Um, as much as we would all like to have our sort of mutually enriching spiritual practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely um, appropriation needs to be in the conversation, uh, but it can't be the only thing. Um, that becomes its own kind of like cultural segregationism, mm -hmm. which, uh, ooh, makes me very uncomfortable it feels yeah, like, like who another, owns culture right well it's like yeah or who's saying that um this culture is off limits to these people mm -hmm. uh it just seems like another expression of colonial mindset to me mm -hmm. um so uh yeah that's one of the problems i had with singleton's work actually was that uh he was basically calling Krishmachari a liar when Krishmachari was saying that he got uh, vinyasa from an old source the yoga karunta um mm. And Singleton was saying, no, he got it from Swedish gymnastics and and he was doing it just to because he was a good marketer or something like that. And I was like, well, can't you just give him the benefit of the doubt? Like, what's your problem, dude? Like, relax. <laughs> like, let Krishmacharya have his story about where it came from, you know? Like, who are you to say that he's he's a liar or he's wrong? Yeah. Or, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, I think ultimately, right, probably both are true. 
Um, I mean, we know that like European physical culture because of colonialism, right? Because of all these other things was a huge influence on um, these guys who were kind of developing yoga systems in the late 19th, early 20th century. But at the same time, I mean, yeah, there's tradition, right? And there's indigenous Indian forms of physical mm -hmm. culture that again, they're kind of working with, right? And, and they are innovating, um, but yeah, that doesn't mean that they're like doing something like illegitimate or like, I mean, yeah. again, like I have a problem with like traditional as a concept because I just genuinely don't know what that means anymore. But I mean, that's traditional in its own way, right? It's all coming from somewhere. Yeah. Um, it's all tradition. <laughs> there's a first time for everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> like there's first time some guy did like the the sun salutation and was like, wow, this is pretty cool. I like how it all links together and it's like kind of cyclical and it's, you know, there's like first time somebody did that and like made it a thing. Um, yeah, but also like, I mean, the, the counterpoint to that is like nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, the sun salutation is so basic. Like, don't you think probably at some point during human history, somebody else did that and just maybe called it something else? Like in some other part of the world? Yeah. Or know, even maybe. in India, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, like it's a burpee, right? <laughs> It's basically mm. a burpee. No, it's not. It's not a burpee. <laughs> burpee doesn't have lunges in it. Not um, all sun salutations have lunges in them. Yeah, yeah. But I think the earliest forms of it that I could find have that deep lunge in it. Um, uh, but uh, also, like, when you look at um, Indian martial arts, like Kalari Payat, uh, that comes out of the South India, I practiced that with an Indian teacher for a while. And I was like, oh, there's, like, there's yoga in here or what we've come yeah. to recognize as yoga and, and vinyasa, like that kind of dynamic movement and uh, taking of animal mm -hmm. forms. I think for me, mm -hmm. it's a big part of yoga. Um, and, and that's in this old martial art, which is said to be maybe one of the sources of, uh, of Kung Fu. Like they see it as a very ancient practice. Mm -hmm. Again, who knows? Uh, there was no kind of definitive text. It's a, a kind of folk tradition. Um, but yeah, there's like kind of older references outside of yoga itself for these mm -hmm. kind of practices, like especially the physical practices, like even um, the the wrestling training, which is very, mm -hmm. a very old tradition. You look at some of those warm up routines, you're like, oh, yeah, this looks like a modern vinyasa class. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it's like, I don't know why we have this idea that like somehow people keep all the stuff that they do in like, like little like separate boxes, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. like, of course. Well, that's such a know, Western like, thing, right? But we don't even do that. I know because we're modern, but like, I, I think that is a product of the Western mind, you know, to want to kind of categorize and, um, and, and segregate things and, maybe it's you know something actually out of like um protestant protestantism and like uh puritanism you know like well, maybe the kind of intermixing like you see that with uh, uh kind of racial thought too and things mm -hmm. like that you know that kind of old eight, um yeah 18th 19th century kind of thinking uh but it's not the way the world works like culture is always syncretizing and melding and you know mm -hmm. it's like a, it's a stew so yeah I, I just think at the end of the day like well who cares 
like just do the practice you know and like don't be an asshole about it like if you got it from somewhere tell people where you got it from or mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever I mean I completely agree with you but also like some people really care right I know we'll let them have that you know <laughs> Um, what else did I want to talk with you about? Well, maybe uh, about alchemy too. Mm. I think that's a very interesting connection. Um, I think often people these days look to alchemy as, uh, oh, this is kind of like a, a, a Western magical system. or so. It's something that we can mm-hmm. safely practice without uh, worrying about um, you know, accusations of cultural appropriation mm-hmm. and things like that. But if you look at alchemy, it's not from Europe, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's very few things that are from Europe per se, right? Those are all pretty well wiped out by, you know, Christianity. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to find sources for our own kind of quote-unquote own traditions, right? But, um, I mean, there are some incredible similarities uh, between, like, tantric hatha yoga and alchemy that just kind mm-hmm. of, like kind of beg to be played with you know like oh um, absolutely yeah what were you able to find in that like kind of what came first like the idea of yoga as a kind of inner alchemy uh was Mm. that already kind of present or was that another thing where somebody kind of forced that um understanding onto something you know what I mean Mm, that's a really good question so I think the first thing that we'd have to do if we were to kind of think through that question is we might want to differentiate between like what I'm going to call Western, right? In that really complicated sense, alchemy. Um, So, I mean, sure, like Renaissance European, right? But before that, sort of like the ancient Mediterranean world. Um, But what we associate with like like European alchemy today, Um, that on the one hand, and then Indian South Asian alchemy on the other hand. Uh, Because there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of overlap um, between those two traditions, but they're not the same. Um, Actually, interestingly, I'm like constantly thinking through this now because I'm working on another book with a friend of mine on Kundalini. Um, Oh, great. So I'm like thinking through all this stuff. Um, One really cool thing that, or one really cool difference that you find is they actually flip the gender symbolism. Um, Mm. So in Western alchemy, right, or Western culture in general, the moon tends to be feminine, the sun tends to be masculine. Um, in Indian alchemy, it's the opposite. Um, it's the moon that's feminine. It's the sun that's, or uh, it's the moon that's masculine, rather. It's the sun that's feminine, right? It's this because you have this idea of Shakti, this sort of fiery feminine energy. Um, it's very South so, Indian, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I think that um, as far as like yoga and and Western alchemy, which I mean, obviously, you sort of find that stuff. Um, in a lot of places from the late 19th century onwards. Um, that's another one of those, like there were maybe compelling similarities there already um, kind of situations. But between Hatha Yoga and Indian alchemy, um, that's a really interesting open question. Uh, and it might be sort of a chicken and egg kind of thing. Um, the scholar that's probably done the most work on this is David Gordon White, um, who's actually one of my advisors at UCSD, where I did my PhD. Um, and so it's one of his first books, actually, is called The Alchemical Body. 
um, he makes this argument that essentially the people that are developing uh, Hatha Yoga systems, you know, during the 12th, 13th century or so, um, are the same people that are sort of engaging in this alchemical thought and, and practice. Mm. Um, so he sees the two as evolving kind of side by side. Mm. Um, I think that's probably like the most historically responsible way that we can have of looking at it, right? Mm. I mean, because we're not going to find like the the first source, like that first thing that yeah. happened. Um, well, I, I think it's I, another one of those like things aren't separate. They're not hermetically sealed. Um, hermetically sealed. So people sealed are using, there. yeah. <laughs> 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 appropriate and alchemical pun intended term. yeah uh i didn't actually know that there was a south indian alchemy system mm -hmm. what did they call it you know uh rasayana is what it's called usually yeah it's what the, would that translate kinda, as um like the the study or the science of rasa rasa um, yeah yeah, and Russia, I mean, being one of these really loaded words, right, yeah. that can mean a lot of things. But yeah, sort of like this, the nectar of immortality, essentially. Yeah, well, Rasa, uh, in musical terms, it's also like a mood or a flavor. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I mean, because the basic meaning of the word is it, it's it's like sap, basically, right? And so, yeah, that idea of like like the flavor of something, the essence of something, I think is kind mm. of like the most basic form of it. Interesting. So, well, this another brings up another interesting point about um, like appropriation within Indian culture. Like, uh, you know, I've heard stories of uh, how the Brahmins appropriated yoga and and kind of tried to clean it up mm. in a way. Um, you know, the idea of like Raja Yoga, this yoga of the mm -hmm. mind being better than a kind of dirty folk yoga of you know hatha yoga doing all those postures and everything that forceful yoga and mm -hmm. kind of looking at it in a denigrating way um but maybe this is also a case of these alchemists going well actually like these yoga practices could be a way to actualize the processes that we're doing in mm -hmm. other ways and to just make them physical and kind of self-contained the body mm -hmm. as alchemical mm -hmm. vessel that kind of thing um, yeah I mean, so I think in, in Western alchemical thought, broadly speaking, right, or such sort of Western esotericism, we have this idea of kind of like as above, so below, right? The That old chestnut. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the closest thing to, that you get to that, um, as far as I'm aware, in like in Sanskrit and in, in Indian thought is atalohe tatadehe, as in metal, so in the body. Right. And so this idea that the same sort of like the same thing that you would do with manipulating metals and just like kind of like like chemical alchemy. Right. Um, those same logics, those same processes are happening within the body um, when we manipulate like the body's subtle energies. Um, mm -hmm. And ultimately, I mean, that's not like a coincidence. Right. That's because there's like this logic to the world uh, because everything is, is one thing. Um, and well, so, of course, and, as above, so below, right? Of course, as in metal, so in the body. Yeah, there's something about that that is on a more horizontal plane, though, than the as above, so below, mm. as within, as without kind of thing. Like, yeah, as in metal, so it is in the body. Like, heat as, I mean, heat is such a, a kind of um, central component of these uh, tantric practices, you know, mm -hmm. stoking the agni, the inner fire mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to cause a transformation. I mean, 
And so foraging of metal, shaping of metal, uh, the, the um, catalyzing element is fire and application mm -hmm. of heat in order to mold and transform and even to purify. Um, that makes total sense to me. It's interesting that metal is the kind of primary metaphor there. But what they're also, I mean, this is where you get back into kind of like the symbolism of the thing, right? Because also what they're referring to is um, not just, I mean, yes, for sure, like the 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 purification, the perfection, right, of, of, of the metal and of the body, um, but also this idea of kind of combining opposing principles, um, mm -hmm. especially kind of masculine and feminine principles, right? So um as in metal, so in the body, right? As in metal, or metal broadly understood, we combine sulfur and mercury. So in the body, we combine kind of the the, the masculine feminine. And, and feminine essences, right? Um, but so too, and this is where, I mean, I, you're absolutely right that the Indian version of it is kind of more horizontal, um, but the vertical is implied in the horizontal, right? The, the horizontal works because it's all kind of Shiva and Shakti, right? Because it's combining these principles of kind of like, like, consciousness and, and energy um, in the in the broader scheme of the cosmos. Yeah. The interesting thing about Shiva and Shakti, though, is it's not so um, like the Western idea of spirit and matter being mm -hmm. hierarchical or far mm -hmm. removed. I, whenever I look at those Indian images, it's always they're together. Mm -hmm. You know, they're uh, even to the point where you've get those um, images of them combined into one being. You know, this yeah. Kind of hermaphroditic, again, kind of a hermetic uh, image, mm -hmm. the, the hermaphrodite being the union of opposites, not into one new entity, but uh, where you still see the, um, the two-ness in the one. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's it's not common to all non-dual Indian systems, um, but especially the systems that kind of like produced Hatha Yoga, right, and that blended most easily with all the alchemical stuff. So here we're talking like sort of Shaiva, right, Shiva-oriented um, uh, non-dual systems. It's, yeah, the, the it's always kind of duality and non-duality. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, yes, everything is one, Right, but it has this kind of tuness to it. Um, the subject and object are always kind of implicit in the way that consciousness works, right? Because otherwise, it's not really consciousness. What is it conscious of? Well, Shiva without Shakti is uh, Shava. Yeah, it's a Shava, it's a corpse. Yeah, so inert. Uh, there's no mm -hmm. relatedness, there's no activity. Um, yeah, so exactly. Oh. What is it? You know, it's nothing. It's nothing without Shakti. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I mean, that's another um, kind of interesting flip in the Indian tradition is uh, maybe uh, Shakti being the most important principle, being feminine. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, maybe that's a sure. Southern in Indian thing more than the Northern, because the Northerners seem to be more fixated on the mountaintop, on Shiva, in like stillness mm. and repose. And the South is more uh got more life in it i think i think you find it in both places though yeah. um because i mean yeah there are like there are sort of shiva oriented traditions right but then there's the shakta tradition um and you north, find that maybe? in north india too yeah, yeah. Okay. um in bengal especially um hmm. you find yeah like where the goddess is the ultimate thing right and sure like the masculine principle is there um 
but ultimately, like if anybody's like on top, quote unquote, right? It's it's her. Um, she is Brahman, right? She is ultimate reality. Um, so I think, I mean, again, it's sort of, it depends on where you look and it depends on who you ask. Um, but for sure you find um, that sort of uh, uh, emphasis on the feminine, I think really across India. Mm. Well, here's me just generalizing, you know, and kind of uh, taking this <laughs> North and South mm. uh, polarity and applying something to it um, just because it's easier for me to think about that way. So that's on me. But I, I did, I talked to someone who's from South India yesterday and he's talking about the tradition he grew up in and it was very earthy and juicy and mm. uh, patriarchal, um, a lot of worship of uh these kind of uh, local deities and, and tribal deities that um, mm -hmm. I can't, you know, at least, you know, kind of the Himalayan yoga tradition that uh, we've been exposed to in the West where, uh, you know, vegetarian purity uh, oriented, mm -hmm. all of that kind of thing. This is very like they're giving uh, alcohol and meat to their deities and things like that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I just, I kind of love that. So that's my personal bias. I'm more of a kind of, uh, a juice of life kind of person than a transcendentalist, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, me too. Fair enough. I actually really enjoy some alcohol and meat every once in a while. <laughs> That's why I like Hatha yoga too and, and Tantra and all that. Cause to me, it's about um, engaging in the richness of life and, uh, you know, yeah, not rejecting it. the world. Right. Yeah. Um. Anything else you want to bring into this conversation at this point? I mean, we've kind of covered a, a broad swath. Yeah, we covered and, a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun. So why uh, why now Kundalini? I mean, um, mm. how long do you think you'll stay involved in this yoga scholarship? Uh, you know, so as I mentioned, um, the Kundalini thing is another co-authored project for me. I mean, actually... Mm. Now it's a book and our manuscript is due in like a month. So it's kind of like, like that time. Really present um, for you. Really? Yeah. It's really, really in my mind. Um, You're in it. Yeah. But it was, it was originally supposed to be an article. And I think my friend and I, uh, we first agreed to do this together in maybe like 2018 or something like that. So it's really been like a long time coming. Um and so, I mean, back then it was kind of very much, you know, I just kind of thought about it as a continuation of all of my, my yoga stuff. And she's a scholar of um, actually goddess uh, Shakta Tantra. Um, so it was, it was sort of a neat thing for us to collaborate on. Um, I mean, that project has sort of gone through its, its own very special journey, um, including becoming a book, uh, you know, after for a long time being an article. And I mean, the pandemic happened and my other books happened in the meanwhile. Actually, after my third book, I kind of thought I was done with yoga. Um, I think I think that's still sort of where I'm at from like a, like a scholarship perspective. Um, I mean, it's still the only practice that really makes sense to me. So I'll never be done with it on a personal level. But the Kundalini stuff for me, I think is actually not really about yoga at least not on its own anymore um <laughs> Say, you know obviously yoga <laughs> practice is is sort of an element right it's mm -hmm. it's uh one of the things that inevitably comes up and very close to the center um when people talk about kundalini but i think that um 
especially in the way that that this friend and I are approaching it, um, because of how people talk about Kundalini, it is something much larger. It's about, you know, human potential and it's about altered states of consciousness of, of all types. Um, and it's about is this sort of larger, like philosophical, metaphysical uh, vision of the cosmos. So I'd like to think mm. that's maybe where I see myself going from here. You know, because I kind of like I answered my question that I wanted to answer about yoga. Um, mm -hmm. Not that I know what it is, but at least now I know that I can't know what it is. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and I'm comfortable with that, right? Yeah. And I have my practice. Um, mm -hmm. And so now I kind of, you know, I want to talk about something like a little bigger, maybe. Um, yeah. And so Kundalini seems like a good avenue into that. Yeah, I was going to say getting into Kundalini could lead you into... Uh, well, more kind of new age or Western esotericism, that kind of thing, because Kundalini was such a evocative image for Western esotericists. Mm. And, and even like, I think Carl Jung was one of the first ones to begin the psychologizing of uh, Indian metaphysics. Yeah, uh, just wrote that chapter. <laughs> yeah. Did you come across uh, one of my heroes is a post-Jungian, James Hillman, who... Uh, yes. They dedicated mm -hmm. that school just up the road from you, Pacifica, mm -hmm. to his work and Joseph Campbell and others, but mainly Hillman. Um, but he did a commentary on Gopi Krishna's book on That's Kundalini. Right. And I love his commentary on it. I think it's really respectful of the tradition mm -hmm. and uh, not appropriative, but um, working with the images. I think that was his main thing. And so what does this image um and what does this person's experience, what could it mean for us outside of that context? And uh -huh, yeah, uh -huh. did you get into that book at all? I did, actually. I mean, and actually, um, when the book was an article, uh, it was an article about Gopi Krishna. Um, uh, what we cool. were looking at is kind of how, you know, because there's all these letters between Gopi Krishna and Aurobindo. Um, mm. When Gopi Krishna is in the midst of his experience, mm. uh, I mean, he's trying cool. to figure out what happened to him or what is currently happening to him. And so he writes to Aurobindo um, and then he's so, you know, like like his his experience is so extreme that he actually sends multiple telegrams. Um, mm. And so what we were originally going to do is kind of compare uh, what is in those letters and how he's sort of what's happening to him, how he's interpreting his experience. Um, and then what he subsequently publishes in, in that book. Um, that was sort of, so that's still at the heart of, of the book. That's, you know, sort of Very like the cool. middle chapter. Um, yeah, I look forward but yeah, to Hillman, Hillman's commentary is also kind of a fascinating addition to it. Although yeah. it's, it's interesting. I think you're right. It's very respectful. Um, but at the same time, like he and Gopi Krishna are almost talking about two completely oh, yeah. different versions of the world, right? Yes. Yeah, and Hillman, I mean, he's got a kind of anti-spiritual um, bias to him. And uh, so, but I, I appreciate what he brings to the conversation for sure, mm -hmm. especially that's kind of early Hillman too. Um, but anyway, so manuscripts due next month. So we're thinking next year publication, something like that. Look forward Hopefully. to Hopefully, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, please come back and let's talk Kundalini. That's another one of my favorite topics. Sounds amazing. So. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I really enjoy this conversation and, um, you know, I hope that it's been interesting for people to listen to. So thanks a lot for taking the yeah, time. And speaking thank you with so us. much for having me. This was so fun. Yeah, good. Okay. Well, take care. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.